Hello and welcome to podcast five of the year. I'm Hugh Welshman, a British filmmaker now living and working in Poland, specialising in animation films. I'm best known for my last film, Loving Vincent, which was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe last year, and also for Peter and the Wolf, for which I won an Oscar. I'm mentioning that in this episode because this is award season right now. And much as I loved flying around to this place and that place with a tux in my rucksack, I'm equally happy this year to be writing and recording this podcast instead. For as well as making animation films, I read a lot of history books. And this podcast of the year tells a selection of stories from the year after World War I, November 1918 to November 1919, which I think is the year more than any other that created the world we live in today. I wrote 12 stories about 12 people that took place over 12 months exactly 100 years ago. Last month we looked at Pilsudski, the strongman of Poland, who guided Poland back into nationhood after 123 years in the Austro-Hungarian, Russian and Prussian wildernesses. This month we look at the strongman of France, Prime Minister George Clemenceau. I should point out that there are two other Frenchmen who should also be considered for that title in the World War I era. Firstly, Joseph Joffre, who was the Commander-in-Chief of France for the first two years of the war. His career, like the lives of one million men, didn't survive the meat grinders of Verdun and the Somme. However, he did show incredible calmness under the early German onslaught and quickly transformed the French military, who had marched into battle with red trousers feathers in their caps and with sabres raised into an army that didn't capitulate to the Germans and quickly worked out how to defend in this new modern industrial kind of war. His successor, Ferdinand Foch, also showed great ability under the final German offensives at the end of the war. He coordinated and commanded the forces of France and also those of Britain and America on the Western Front. And, of course, he was the supreme Allied commander at the time of the armistice. It has been debated for a hundred years as to how competent Foch and Joffre were as military strategists, and it will be debated for at least a hundred more. What cannot be debated is the fact that they were both strong-willed leaders who staved off defeat. This podcast is set in the year after World War I, and in that world, Clemenceau was the undisputed strongman of France. If you're interested in finding out more about Joffre and Foch, I highly recommend Dan Carlin's Hardcore History series, Blueprint for Armageddon. Dan has read all the books on World War I that I ever have, and many more besides. His presentation is informative, entertaining, with an enjoyable measure of contemplative philosophising thrown into the mix as well. Thankfully, he didn't go on to do the year after the war ended. If he had, I might never have plucked up the courage to publish this podcast. So please, if you want to hear what came before the year check out Blueprint for Armageddon. Now, back to the year. Episode 5, the 19th of February 1919, Clemenceau the Tiger. In waking a tiger, use a long stick. Mao Zedong. Clemenceau ate little, drank even less, and lived modestly in his small ground floor apartment on Rue Franklin. Yet on this day, the 19th of February 1919, he was, de facto, the most powerful man in the world. 
It was not because he was the leader of the world's strongest nation. The men that he met with each day, President Woodrow Wilson and Prime Minister David Lloyd George vied for that mantle. And he knew that even his nemesis, well, strictly speaking, his nation's nemesis, although he had fully internalized them as his own, Germany, was undeniably a stronger nation than his nation, France. No, the reason that he was the most powerful man in the world at this moment was because he had the strongest will, the most limited agenda, and the authority that the blood of 1,200,000 dead French soldiers gave him. While President Wilson fretted about the application of abstract principles and Great Britain worried about money and the maintenance of its unwieldy empire, Prime Minister Clemenceau simply wanted to destroy Germany to make sure that it could never attack France again. Clemenceau remembered only too well the previous war with Germany, or Prussia as it had been named at the start of that war. Back then he had still been able to think of himself as a young man, a young man who had recently set up a medical practice administering to the city's poorest and most neglected, and he had been newly appointed as the mayor of the 18th arrondissement, although everyone simply referred to him as the mayor of Montmartre, because the slums of Montmartre sat at the heart of his constituency. With the Prussians at the gates, rat pâté had been the only meat on the menu within the city walls, unless you were rich enough to buy your way into a giraffe tenderloin or a rhino T-bone, as the zookeepers auctioned off cuts of their animals, one beast at a time, to the highest bidders. Through his surgery, Clemenceau had tried his best to keep the poor of Montmartre from dying of the diseases preying on his weak and malnourished constituents. However, his efforts had been in vain, as those that he had managed to keep alive through the Prussian siege perished soon after in the explosive demise of the Commune. After the fall of the Paris Commune, he had focused both his politics and his medical practice on the children of Paris's poor. Infant mortality was heading in the opposite direction from progress, which Clemenceau considered a crime in light of all the French men, women and children lost during the war with Prussia and the subsequent domestic battles between the communards and the forces of the reactionary right. In his capacity as a doctor and as a councillor on the newly emasculated Paris Council, Clemenceau had given his voice so fiercely for those who had none that he had at the age of 31 acquired the nickname the Tiger. Now he was a 77-year-old Tiger, still fiercely speaking out for those who had no voice. For now he had not only to speak for all living French men, women and children, he also had to speak up for the 1,200,000 dead and buried in the mud of their homeland. And still, he had to speak for the ghosts of those children starved to death in the last war by the Prussian siege and the cost of the reparations that they exacted on France. And also, he had to speak for those citizens of France who were yet to be born, who would grow up next to a Germany with two sons for every one of France's. He spoke for them all. People said he was too immovable, too fierce, too stubborn. How could he not be with the weight of all those souls resting on him? The main problem was sex or rather the results of sex. Germans were either having much more of it, or maybe it was that his people were getting too good at contraception. In the space of his own lifetime, Germany had gone from having an advantage of a body or two per 100 over France to having close to double the manpower. And the other problem was work. The Germans seemed to have a limitless capacity for it. They seemed oblivious to the finer things that life had to offer. 
How could his country, romantic, cultured and cuisine orientated, compete with that? Clemenceau the tiger, that's how. If he was being especially kind or honest, he would also begrudgingly mention Field Marshal Foch into the bargain, and perhaps pay lip service to the vast reserves of resources, material and human, that Britain and her empire had poured into the war. As for the Americans, pah, they were like the snooty belle arriving late to the ball and hoping to upstage the other debutantes with her fresh face. In their daily meetings, Clemenceau, a lifelong Republican and a committed atheist, who had fought passionately over several decades to sever all links between the church and the state in France, had to breathe deeply, bite his lip and bide his time as President Wilson, a devout Presbyterian, whimsied onto another one of his sermonical digressions into the realms of applying, ham-fistedly to Clemenceau's mind, his simple, sanctimonious principles onto the European arena. And bide his time he had. For Clemenceau had waited his whole adult life for this moment, the moment of bringing Germany to its knees. So yes, it was only right that he didn't drink and ate like a bird and kept his hawk eyes open so that his countrymen could eat well, drink deeply and make love. And he hoped, oh how he hoped, make babies while he, Clemenceau the tiger, daily tightened the straps across the German wolf. It was 9.15am, his tea was finished, and it would surely be time for him to go into diplomatic battle for another day. The clash of the three white-haired old men in armchairs. They had started the peace conference in large committees made up of the representatives of many nations, with legions of civil servants and diplomats and experts around them. But that had been unwieldy, so they had left the committees behind and commandeered the French Foreign Minister's private office one day, and then for every day since. Such a civilised and comfortable setting for the three white-haired old men to be making decisions that decided who would have the resources to withstand poverty and starvation and who wouldn't, which peoples would prosper and which new states would be born with a gun to their head. Clemenceau walked out into his tiny garden as he did every day, and walked around the flower beds and observed the sky. He wondered to himself whether he actually missed the old days, the days when he had been the firebrand, always in opposition, haranguing the men in power. He had many times over the course of 30 years refused the reins of power when he had been offered them. For, he had thought, how could he be uncompromising in his defence of the downtrodden, nimble in his pursuit of the corrupt, if he was encumbered with the vast, inert and compromised trappings of executive power. In those days, he could say exactly what he thought, and if someone was offended and dared to, they could challenge him to a duel. But few ever did, as every politician in Paris had known that the tiger was an expert marksman. An image flashed into his head of himself, Lloyd George and Wilson, all with two six-shooters in hand in a three-way shootout. He emitted a small chuckle at this thought, now that would be something, rather than this game of poker where the chips were the countries of the world and the old white-haired men could draw new cards for themselves and rip up others at will. It was a number of years since he had fired a gun, and in the last duel he had fought, which was 27 years in the past, he had intentionally shot his three bullets wide of the man. For de Roland might have been a right-wing reactionary and the fiercest critic of Clemenceau, but he was a patriot through and through, 
rabid in his desire to get Alsace and Lorraine back from Germany, and a man who had fought against the Prussians in 1870. Clemenceau often joked that it was no wonder France had lost if Derelord's marksmanship was anything to go by, as he, unlike Clemenceau, had been aiming to kill, yet missed by margin enough to cause the spectators to duck. No, that target hadn't been worth it. But as to his present target, there was no doubt. Clemenceau wasn't going to show any mercy this time. It was February, so there was not much to check up on in the garden. But a routine is a routine. Rise at 5am and review all the papers for the day. Bathe at 7.30, take a boiled egg and one piece of toast and a cup of tea at 8.15 and read those articles that his early trawl suggested needed closer scrutiny. At 9.15am, walk around the garden. At 9.30am precisely, leave the house, raise hat to adoring crowds and go on his way to another day with Messieurs Wilson and Lloyd George. At 9.30am precisely, Prime Minister Clemenceau stepped out of his front door. As usual, the crowds were there, as they had been every day since the war had ended, even each and every day of winter, and it had been a cold winter, to cheer him. His driver opened his door and then went round to the climb into the driver's seat. As he did so, seven shots rang out. Clemenceau knew he had been hit, but he didn't know where or how many times. He wasn't dead but he soon would be if Gerard kept driving like this. Gerard, are you hit? Clemenceau croaked from the back. No, sir. Well then, stop driving like you are then. I won't die till we get to hospital, but we both might die before we get there if you keep driving like this. His secretary beside him inquired if Monsieur Prime Minister knew where he'd been hit. He replied that there was pain somewhere in the middle of his body. Later that day, he was open for visitors and the first people allowed in were, of course, the French press. After all, he belonged to the French people, so it was only right that they were the first to see him and to know that their tiger was indestructible. One of the journalists told him that it had been confirmed that the shooter was a Frenchman, and what punishment did the Prime Minister think fitting for this man? Clemenceau looked at them severely with a practised look that men could not hold and had to look away from. We have just won the most terrible war in history, yet here is a Frenchman who misses his target six out of seven times at point-blank range. Of course this fellow must be punished for the careless use of a dangerous weapon and for poor marksmanship. I suggest that he be locked up for eight years with intensive training in a shooting gallery. A sparkle entered the 77-year-old's eyes and the journalist first descended into laughter and then started cheering and applauding. Clemenceau then told them that he would be back at work the next day. He couldn't wait for them to take the bullet out. He had work to do for France and each time the bullet moved inside him and caused him pain, it would remind him of the work he had to do on behalf of the 1,200,000 Frenchmen who had also shed their blood for France's freedom. Afterward... George Clemenceau didn't make it into work the next day, but he was back in action within a fortnight. The bullet was lodged so close to his vital organs that he lived with the assassin's bullet inside him for the remaining 11 years of his life. While Prime Minister Clemenceau did manage to push through the punitive terms he had sought from the outset against Germany in the Treaty of Versailles, contrary to the will of President Woodrow Wilson, who aimed to enact a peace based upon his 14 points, 
The divisions that the fractious Paris Peace Conference drove between France and Great Britain and America eventually undermined the very treaty that they had worked for six months to enact. In the years that followed the Great War, Clemenceau, who was soon out of power, witnessed both Great Britain and America distancing themselves from the punitive provisions of the Treaty of Versailles and failed to back France up in enforcing the treaty's terms on Germany. Clemenceau went back to his previous occupation of being a fierce critic of the French executive. But despite being the father of victory, his voice had never regained the singeing firebrand quality it had before he ascended to executive leadership. The tiger had ended up in the wilderness. George Clemenceau died one month after the Wall Street crash in 1929, the event that catapulted Hitler from a fringe figure in German politics to a major contender for power. It would be another three years before Hitler would finally assume the leadership of Germany and fully repudiate the Treaty of Versailles that Clemenceau had fought so hard to be a binding means of keeping Germany from ever threatening France again. His domestic arch-nemesis, Field Marshal Foch, turned out to be right to the point of prescience when he said after the treaty was signed in 1919, this is not peace, it is a 20-year armistice. Clemenceau will also make a cameo in the March episode. By that time, only three weeks after being shot, the 77-year-old will be skipping down the stairs and flirting shamelessly with the Queen of Romania. Queen Marie, also known as the Soldier Queen, will be the subject of the next episode. And I'm thrilled that my good friend Aiste de Jote will be reading the story. Aiste was the first Lithuanian actor or actress to ever win a Shooting Star Award and is one of Lithuania's top actresses. She also is now acting in English language productions, so when I heard about that, I immediately invited her to come and be a guest reader on the year. So thank you for listening, and please tune in next time and check out Ice-T's installment of the year. <laughs>